no matter what culture you're in, even if you don't speak the language, there is a language, that, there's a leadership language that transcends the boundaries. And when people see that you are an ethical leader, you're a fair person, you're kind to people around you and you're transparent, there's a natural gravitation. You lead, you ease into leadership a lot better. Hi, I'm Pearl, your host for the Rebel Curiosities podcast. I speak with curious rebels who are leaders in their field, who have harnessed the power of curiosity in driving what they do. Today, I'm speaking with Kenneth Tan, who is the president of APEC in Varian, a global multinational company specializing in cancer diagnostic and treatment solutions, and now part of Siemens Health Unions. There were so many aspects of personal and people leadership that we dived into that we have created two episodes for this conversation. He talks about the four tenets of leadership that has guided his own journey. I sense that he does not suffer fools lightly, yet he turns that lens of looking at others as a mirror of deep reflection into his own thinking as well. His views on the realities of working in organizations are highly pragmatic, yet infused with a sense of compassion and purpose. We discuss more about his career journey, what the DEI culture really looks like, and how authenticity these days have become a buzzword. And yet, authenticity in itself is so much more critical and relevant to us than ever. This is the Rebel Curiosities Podcast. Welcome to the show, Kenneth. It's fantastic to have you here. Hey, girl. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the last time we spoke, it was a conversation that I really enjoyed because we spoke about actually many things, many facets of like work, life and leadership. And I enjoyed that really as well, not just because, you know, we have similar background in healthcare, but also I suspect that you're a true rebel at heart in the sense that you are not the most conventional when it comes to your choices and your philosophy on life. But let's start from, from the beginning. How did you get started on this career path that you're on? For me, it was a pretty natural choice. I think... You know, people often ask, right, what do you choose? How do you choose your career path? How do you choose your education path? You know, do you choose something you are passionate about or do you choose something you will be good at? I think at a very young age, I begin to understand what I was good at, what I liked, what I wanted to devote my time to. And a lot of it was still on, you know, was, was based on the practical aspects. How did something I learned apply in life moving forward? And I gravitated towards the sciences. And amongst the sciences, I gravitated towards biology and chemistry because I could see how I could apply that. I could see it at work. I could see it how I could see how to apply it moving forward. So of course, I got a lot more curious in it, right? I got a lot more passionate in it. I decided that it would actually form the foundations of my career. I didn't really enjoy physics, um, but of course, today in the company that I work. And understanding physics as I got a little bit older, I would say, hey, physics does explain a lot about the world. But when it came to mathematics, I never really could understand how, you know, integration or differentiation manually on a piece of paper would apply in my daily life. So I guess I gravitated towards the sciences. I gravitated towards being good at language. And I'm blessed that... 
you know, as I pursued that study, you know, the career that I have today allows me to apply what I learned in school. And very few people have that opportunity. So I feel blessed. So healthcare is a very natural progression. But within healthcare itself, oncology or cancer care was a calling. And I found that over the last few years in this company called Varian, who is today a Siemens Healthineers company. Um, and that calling into healthcare, that calling into cancer care, grounds me where I am today, allows me to enjoy the work that I do, resonates with the purpose that I have. And I feel blessed just being to, to, to be able to find you know, profession and passion yeah. come together. That's a powerful combination. And, you know, I think there are very few who actually been able to connect the two. Part of it, I feel, is kind of the self-awareness and knowledge. I, I think you recognize from an early age that sciences are interesting to you and that's what you want to pursue. Did you always know that from the start as well? Or has it always been a journey of like learning and discovery for you? I think in terms of the education part, I think understanding where I excelled academically, I think that came very early. It was how to connect where you excel in your skill sets and then being able to find it, find, find an area where you can build a professional career on. Mm-hmm. I think it was very natural. For me, it was natural. In fact, there were points whereby I tried to fight that natural tendency. Why? What made you decide to fight that? It's, 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 you know, when you are younger in your career, you want to explore. You want to explore your options. Looking back, I guess it was good, right, to explore those options because only when you explore those options do you realize what is good for you, what works for you, what doesn't work for you. So exploring those options helped me ultimately figure out, right, what I was good at, what I really wanted to do with my career. Biology, chemistry, the sciences, health care, health sciences was natural. I've tried to fight it, but I still came back to it because it was just so natural. So once again, you know, having having purpose, having profession, having passion come together, you know, I feel blessed because few people have that opportunity. So it's a lot of following your natural inclinations. That's what you're saying. So for people trying to figure out their way in, in life as well, would that kind of be, you know, what you say to them too? Yes, I would say listen to yourself. I would say listen to your heart, but also watch yourself because there has got to be alignment. If your life is not aligned, right, that means what you're good at, what you want to do is not aligned. There's just dissonance and dissonance brings that unhappiness. Dissonance brings that lack of content in your life. So I think, yes, I would say listen. Listen to your heart. Listen to your mind. Listen to your own capabilities. I also think listen to advice. There's only a caveat to advice. Listen to advice from people who have been there, done that, and ultimately who are fully vested in you. That means they only want you to do well. And of course, the caveat then is sometimes parents may not be the best source of advice. Indeed. Right? Because your parents may not have been there or done that. And they try to give you that advice. I know this is this is a little bit contrary to conventional 
wisdom, especially in an Asian context. And it takes that grain of being a rebel, I think, to kind of go against that. Yeah, correct. But I guess in, in the long run, you either choose to disappoint others or you choose to disappoint yourself. We just have to pick. Great and point. I think in my, in, 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 in my sense, you know, I chose not to disappoint myself. I cannot help but feel like that's a better choice. We'll find out one day. <laughs> we'll find yeah. out at the end of the journey. And how has your own working experience shaped you into the leader that you are today? I think I've been through a lot of companies. If you look at the career path or the career journey that I've chosen, I think one thing remains. The entire career was in healthcare. Although I may have moved through different parts of healthcare, but the entire career was in healthcare. But there was diversity in experience in the therapeutic areas, in the different aspects of healthcare. The other thing was I also had this tendency to move between what we call strategy roles mm -hmm. and commercial roles. And I tried to alternate between these roles as I moved through my career. And one of those reasons why was because strategy roles you know, require us to think big picture, think possibilities, think vision, and commercial roles, when you hold a target, it brings reality, it brings you down to the ground, right? It, it, it's, it's execution. And I think taking strategy to execution is critical in that sense. So I think having these roles that you alternate allows us to experience strategy, think big, and then after, the, after that, execute with focus also. So, so I think that's, that, that's one critical feature. The other critical feature was... As I began to move through organizations, somehow or rather, I ended up with a career that experienced a lot of mergers and acquisitions. And with mergers and acquisitions, you experience a lot of uncertainty and experience a lot of change. And that makes you accustomed to change, right? Change becomes something that is rather consistent, rather normal. It makes you more adaptable. It makes you a little bit more agile. So today, as of today, I've gone through four major, major acquisitions in my career, two on the buying side, two on the being acquired side. And each journey was different. But whether you are being acquired or acquiring, integration becomes a critical piece. While you are experiencing uncertainty and change, other people are also experiencing uncertainty and changes. How do you then navigate this together? So I guess... Careers could be diverse, they could be complex. Experiences could be diverse and could be complex. But I think what I've learned is I've learned to also digest everything and condense everything down, live by four tenets. And the four tenets were written probably about 12 years to 15 years ago. Often when I speak with people, I still share with them these four tenets. And I ask them, I say, can you challenge these tenets? No, do they still hold true today? Because they are rules that sort of like, simple operating rules that you follow. And if they don't hold true today, and if you don't challenge them constantly, you could be operating using old rules. And maybe I'll share them with you and yeah. you can help me with it also, right? So the first tenet I have is that ethical, mm -hmm. fair, kind, and transparent leadership transcends boundaries. That means no matter what culture you're in, even if you don't speak the language, there is a language there's a leadership language that transcends the boundaries. And when people see that you are an ethical leader, you are fair, 
person, you're kind to people around you and you're transparent. There's a natural gravitation. You lead, you know, you, you ease into leadership a lot better if you follow these simple principles. They really do transcend boundaries. That's the first tenet. Um, the second tenet is executing a concise and aligned strategy drives sustainable growth. And the focus is on the word concise. Strategy cannot be 67 pages long, right? That's what we pay the consultants to write for us. But we need to articulate a very concise strategy that is understood up and down the organization. That means the operational organization does not have the time to digest 67 pages. It has to be concise. They have to understand what it is very naturally. The other one is alignment, right? Because if an organization is misaligned and if you do not take the time to align the strategy, and when you execute it, it's going to be all over the place. So taking the time to align, bringing the right people in to input into it and comment on it and challenge it is going to be critical. And part of alignment is opening up for socialization, opening up for challenge, opening up for refinement so that you get everybody to be bought in. Right? And only when you execute that strategy, otherwise it's left on the table. Right? Only when you execute that strategy will you have sustainable growth. Otherwise, growth is going to be inconsistent. One you know, if you look at businesses, one year they do well, next year they wouldn't do well. One year they do extremely well, next year they do extremely well. You know, that's because there is a lack of execution on strategy, right? It's all short-term. You chase after a number, you take short-term decisions. You're not focused on executing strategy, right? So that's the second tenet. The, the third one is if you do things the same way, you're going to get the same results. And therefore, it is important for human beings and also organizations to transform at our peak. Transformation at the peak is very, very difficult, right? Because you are doing well and you will get questions from the rest of the organization that says, hey, we are doing so well. Why are we changing? I think there's a lack of understanding that, especially with a volatile, uncertain, and you know, rapidly evolving world at this point of time, it's better that transformation be constant. Change and transformation is better for it to be a constant because Transformation and change, when you are on a downward spiral, is going to be a lot more painful, a lot more difficult. You're going to have a lot more casualties across the organization. So it's important that transformation be at the peak. And it's important also for leaders to instill that in the organization. <clears throat> and if you instill that early in organizations, it becomes norm. It becomes part and parcel of the operating cadence. And the last one is the best people solve the most complex problems, right? So it's about bringing great people into the organizations. It's about not just bringing great people, it's about bringing diverse opinions, right? To have that diversity and excellence at all levels of the organization. If you bring great people and you align them towards a strategy and a purpose, the impact will even be greater. So I think foundation of all organizations is still going to be purpose and you help everyone find their purpose, you're gonna have great outcomes. So these are the tenets that I've operated with over the past, what, 12, 15 years? And you know, what are your thoughts there? Do they still stand or am I talking about something that is antique or you know, <laughs> ancient? First of all, you know, there are some really hard truths in there. There's a lot of wisdom in what you said. As I hear you talk through the tenets, whether it's 
the values of being ethical, kind, and transparent to being able to communicate it concisely and in alignment to what you do. I think it just centers everything around people. There's really some powerful wisdom in there because what you articulated actually hits hard at what it is to bring out the best in people, right? Because you can have a very long strategy, like you said, and you know, we've all been through that planning templates that's got 60 to 100 slides, been there, done that, you know, no one remembers that. But single paragraph about what we do, why we do, that's the one that sticks. Correct. I, I know this sounds sometimes a little bit dystopian, right? But how do you distill a complex strategy down to simple sound bites? And not simple sound bites that's noise, but simple sound bites that people understand and it resonates with them. That's a skill. Yeah. The crystallization itself is a skill. The irony of it is the smarter leaders are, the harder they have, the harder the problem, no, the, the, the harder it is they find to make it simple. I, I, I often challenge um, my, my leaders around me, especially the strategy leaders or the marketing leaders. And, I, um, and, 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 and even more importantly, if you lead large teams, teams, right, whether you're in an operational aspect, if you cannot crystallize your plan, your strat plan, or your operational plan into one slide and make that slide as few words as possible, one slide as few words as possible, it means that you yourself have not crystallized your plan. You yourself have not truly understood the plan that you're trying to articulate or the plan that you're trying to roll out. You know, whatever complexity that we have, we can start with 12 pages, but we need to reduce it down to one single slide with as few words as possible to communicate our intent and communicate our strategy. Why do you think people find it so hard to be in that space? Here's a hypothesis. I think we all want to be perceived as smart. We all want to differentiate ourselves. So we want to demonstrate that we are thinking differentially from others. We have a different point of view, that our different point of view may be correct. But I think if you take a step back, right? Leadership is not about making yourself stand out. Yes, to a certain degree, it's about making yourself stand out. But it's also, more importantly, about bringing everybody else along. Yep. And if you make everything so complicated, yes, you will be this brilliant thinker. And yes, you will definitely make a difference to the world. But is that how you're going to bring everybody along with you? I, I, I guess that's the dichotomy we have to navigate, right? On one hand, being extraordinary or asking people to do extraordinary things means that you're going to have to get people to differentiate themselves. But on the other hand, how do you bring everybody mm. along? So difficult doesn't have to be complex. Exactly. And I think we, 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 we mix that up sometimes, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, um, difficult things can be simple. Actually, the most simple things are the most difficult ones. I, I, I give you an example, right? Controlling your diet. <laughs> right waking up at 5 a.m every day they are the simplest things but they are so so difficult so never come i i guess don't 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 mix up difficult form from uh, uh uh don't mix up difficult with complex yeah right yeah we can still get people to do difficult things uh uh and, and, and keep it very simple for people 
And that's why I think your tenets are powerful because, you know, I think you have gone through uh, the different tenets or motivations of human behavior. You can have change, you can have curiosity, you can have vision, but if you cannot bring people along to what you do, there is no action, right? Right. There's only an intent. Correct. And I want to pick up as well. You said something earlier that resonated. Um, if you do the things that the same way that you always done it, yeah. you always get the same results. And yet, we've all been through corporations and organizations where there has been a lot of work and effort to set up processes, best practice, you know, and, and all of those things become the cornerstone of how an organization is set. Don't fix things if it's not broken. You know, what you're saying is, let's look at things when things are going good and see how to change. And, and I think the word that you use or the word that commonly people use, don't fix things, you know, when it's not broken. You are not fixing something, right? The, the, when, when you fix something, you imply that it's broken. I think the, 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 the language that we use is going to be critical for to, to, to encourage the behavior that we want to see. I don't call it fixing. I call it an evolution. Right? I call it getting better. I call it improvement. I call it possibilities. So I think if we view it very, very differently, we treat it very, very differently. We call it differently, we treat it very, very differently. So I think that's a critical part. I know the, the, the word best practice to me these days, I, I don't know how best practices can apply, especially in an environment that is evolving and changing so quickly. So best practice today may be irrelevant tomorrow. I think it's, it's important. And I think this is where that curiosity piece, right? That openness to asking questions and asking the difficult questions. I think that's the value that leaders should bring to the table. What kind of difficult questions should leaders ask? Well, I think that's, that's an area for me, uh, that's, that's, that's still an area of development. You know, I think I have been, one of my developmental feedback throughout my career has been that I've been a, I've been a rather disagreeable person. I've been a rather disagreeable person my entire life. <laughs> You know, even even in my younger days. Now, I think it's a matter of understanding who you really are and channeling that energy into something productive and constructive, right? So I believe that the world needs a little bit more disagreement, but I also believe that we can disagree a lot better. We don't have to be polarized in our stance. And even if we are polarized in our stance, we can agree to disagree and then still move forward. So I guess my development is how do I disagree better, right? Knowing my foundations of who I am, being authentic to myself, but being able to channel that authenticity to something a little bit more constructive, productive, and positive is how do you disagree better. How we disagree better for me is one Take the emotions out of it, right? That means be dispassionate about it. Hold your values strong, but your opinions weak. Be strong on your values, but weak on your opinions. Don't hold your opinions too strong, right? So their values and opinions, they're very, very different. I think that's one. Two, the concept of curiosity, right? And the, the powerful questions I realize always start with why and how. 
These are the two most powerful questions. And sometimes the path to, to asking the right questions is to un understanding why from the other person's perspective. Where are they saying this? Why are they taking this stand? Begin to understand why. Not communicate why, but understand why. I think that's this. That's very, very difficult to do because very often when you are in a heated conversation, yes. you, want to, you want to project your why. Correct. You are not really ready to understand the other person's why. And I think that is, at least for me, it's still a developmental area, right? Understand the why's. And then go about the hows. And the hows, to me, are about generating options, right? Because when you have options, you have possibilities. So how are we going to do this? What are different ways, right? So how do we do this in many, many different ways? Because what I usually realize is the person that has only one how probably is the problem. Because <laughs> there's no one way to solve the problem. So if I realize that, that if, I, if I come and there's only one way to do it, it's my way or no other way, then you have to begin to realize that you are the problem. There cannot be only one how to solve something. There has got to be multiple house. And the person that is generating the multiple house is the one that's ultimately deemed more constructive. The one who stands on stands their ground and refuses to change their position. Yeah. You know for a fact that you are dealing with someone that may not be the yeah. most constructive. So I think sometimes you you, you I, I, the other key to this is why and how you have to not view it as a lens. That means don't judge people with this use it more as a mirror very often we use every good you know every good learning we use it as a lens and we put it and judge people with it but we don't use it as a mirror to reflect it on ourselves right so so i think we use it more as a, a, a mirror than a lens to see the world it's interesting that you mentioned you know the person with just one how is that person that is probably the most or the, the, the least curious and that person with just one how could also be the one that's most disagreeable. Well, hopefully I'm not. I, I try not to be that person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think you are. I don't think you are. But I guess you're describing that person who, you know, stands his or her ground without evaluating other options, right? And, and my only way of settling this problem is the only right way. So, so I guess that that non-curious person in exploring possibilities, you know, might be a disagreeable person as opposed to how you describe yourself. I think I can get a lot more self-aware. I don't know. You know, I would love, I would love to, to hear feedback from people on this. Uh, once again, we may view ourselves in a very distorted way and sometimes <laughs> we may be too kind on ourselves. <laughs> or we may be harshest on ourselves, actually. Uh, but, you know, I, I really like the, the conversation on, you know, how we are dissecting this in leadership as well, because asking the difficult questions, you've channeled that into a lens or a mirror, like inward for yourself. It's not so much of what you do for people that's going to be the hardest thing. It's going to be what you believe in and what you channel outwards apart from your own ego and identity, you know, to, to help people. Mm. I, I think that could be the most challenging thing. Right. I think there's this desire to be authentic, right? And I think leaders need to know exactly who they are. You need to know who you are. You need to appreciate yourself, who you are. 
by the meantime, don't love yourself too much. <laughs> right? And 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 that that means you also need to be you need to ask yourself questions. You need to reflect. You need to be curious about yourself, just as you are curious about the world. You know, one of those things I've realized is authenticity. Right? Is your voice of compassion, not your voice of cruelty. That means being authentic doesn't give you the license or the pretext to go piss everybody else one off and you know make people feel bad about themselves right so 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 your authenticity has to come from that right place so that you come across and you 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 engage with the world with some level of compassion um it's not an excuse i really like that to be uh to be a terrible person Exactly. And and the reason being, you know, you're just being yourself. I, I think that's a horrible definition of authenticity. Okay. All right. And and I guess we 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 no we, we do see individuals interpret that authenticity and take it to great extremes. A lot of people have told me since you know I've been using authenticity as a word in my conversations. Mm. Some tell me that this word has been overused. I guess it depends whether people understand the word in depth. People will also say purpose is overused. There are many words that are overused. Compassion is overused. Purpose is overused. You know, diversity is overused. The challenge is to reflect deeply. One word can mean many, many things. And if you don't understand it deeply, yes, it becomes overused. But what does it really mean? To someone who says it is overused, my question would be, what does it mean to you? Explain, right? You know, share with me what it means to you. Because I can give you a very deep yeah. uh, 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 explanation. The other one about authenticity is I feel that it is actually a springboard for us to thrive and for us to transform. Because if you don't know who you are and you don't embrace who you are, you will never thrive. It's almost like a catalyst to changing things and, and looking deeply within yourself. So it's more than just a password. Although I guess, you know, in the world we live in today, a, a lot of these things become passwords because everyone's trying to say something. Correct. And, and, and I guess it becomes a password because people have bastardized it, right? Bastardized the <laughs> word. They have made it the ugly word, right? You know, why? Because there are leaders, you see them all over the place, right? On, me, on social media, on television, who have made being them, themselves or being their stupid selves, a brand. So I think, yeah, that, that those behaviors may have bastardized the word authenticity. Uh, yeah. <laughs> some, some names come to mind, but we won't mention that here. We won't mention that, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, um, but I think that, 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 that's why people are sick and tired of it. Same as, you know, there is, there, there, there is fatigue on a lot of other passwords, right? Um, um, diversity is the other password that people are fatigued with, that's because people haven't understood what deep diversity uh, means. Like I gave, uh, people who say, you know, you, you will encounter many individuals who will say, I believe in DE&I. It's like, okay, so explain to me a little bit beyond the D. Tell me a little bit about E and tell me a little bit about I. And that's probably when you see whether individuals have depth in their understanding, right? What does it mean to you by diversity? Um, my favorite question when it comes to diversity is, what is 
your second most passionate dimension of diversity? Everybody has one, but what is your second most passionate dimension of diversity? And you wait for them to answer. And sometimes that wait can be very, very long. And I'm a big, you know, proponent of diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, right? And, and you know, what you're saying is diversity is something that people understood widely. And, yeah. and the E and the I are something that, you know, not many people understand in depth and able to understand their own motivations towards it. Mm. So, so I guess, you know, on this topic, what do you think are the most common misconceptions of the E and the I that you talk about? For me, I'm a firm believer of equity first. So if you ask me to define what the leader of the future is going to be, um, having a leader that pursues equity first is very, very important. What does equity mean to you? Maybe I'll, I'll, I, I will start by what equity doesn't mean. Okay. So you hear this diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the one thing that you need to realize is that diversity without equity is tokenism okay that means we are doing it for the wrong reasons we create diversity for diversity's sake we create diversity because we want to hit a metric or a kpi if you create diversity but you don't ensure that there's equity in that diversity that means people are still unequal in the ecosystem you have not really created that diversity is not going to make a huge difference. Basically, it's just superficial. The other one is inclusion without equity is performative. What it basically means is if we bring in diverse individuals and we bring them into the meeting, bringing them to the meeting says, hey, you are invited to the meeting. Okay, you look at this meeting. There are so many kinds of, you know, it's diverse. It's a diverse meeting. You are brought to the meeting. But I don't give you an equal voice. I don't give you an equal seat at the table. Then it is performative. Your voice is not heard. Now, the concept of equality and equity is a much deeper concept to delve into. I'm not the expert here, so I'll try not to explain it because I'm still in that process of understanding it and internalizing it. But we need to understand that if we don't focus on this, this, this equity conversation, once again, the words like diversity, the words like inclusion are just going to be buzzwords. Yeah. People are going to feel they are words that leaders throw around to make them seem like as though they are part of a movement. The one interesting thing as I begin to reflect on it, and this is, this is my, my, my view, uh, uh, and it's, it's still a hypothesis that I'm trying to uncover and understand, is that often... Why do you feel that, why do I see that leaders are uncomfortable addressing this issue? Is for us to acknowledge an equity, that, 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 that there's inequity in the world, we have first got to recognize that we have got privilege. And for leaders to recognize that we come from a position of privilege, it's, it's not easy. And then after that, speak out about the systemic inequities that you have benefited from is even harder, right? Because why we all choose to believe that we got here through merit, through exactly. hard work. Now, if you reflect, it's not. There were yeah. elements of our lives where 
yes, we had our own challenges, but we also had our own privileges. And it was those privileges that contributed to, to, to our success at the right time, at the right place. Right. So, so, so there were all these things. So it's very difficult for a leader to recognize their privilege. And then after that, go out and speak out about the systemic inequities that they could have been beneficial, you know, they could have benefited from. And then after that, try to erode or eliminate these privileges that they have enjoyed. Tough, very, very difficult to do. Yeah, it is. It's once again, human behavior, right? It is. Yeah. It's a conflict within that human psyche that, you know, again, if you don't stare deep within yourself and unlock it, you, you can never get past that. Correct. I, I just want to pick up what you said. Privilege is hard to acknowledge because I think acknowledging it somehow erases all the hard work that you have done to get there, right? Which is what you call merit. Because everyone has worked hard to get to that position. And acknowledging that you have privilege to bring you there sure. somehow feels like, you know, taking away everything that you are and you have done. It's, it's, it's not easy. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a journey, right? It's a journey that requires self-awareness and self-reflection. You know, we would all, we all have our own superhero origin stories or our own leadership origin stories that we narrate for ourselves and we sh- not only do we narrate we share them proudly yeah. and a lot of superhero origin stories come from a position of underprivileged right so we say hey this is where i started this is what i did this is what i achieved that's a narrative that we tell ourselves and sometimes we do drink our own kool-aid right but i think it's important for us to continue to reflect it isn't it, it's not the end of the journey mm-hmm. And if we, the, the more we reflect, the better, I think, the more self-aware we become. I think then it allows us to treat people around us with a little bit more kindness, with a little bit more compassion. You know, for any leader out there who truly wants to call yourself a D-E-N-I leader, I think it's important for us to look beyond the D and look deeper into the D because there is a concept of intersectionality within the diversity conversation that we need to understand a lot better also. And the basic concepts of intersectionality tells us that if we focus only on one singular dimension of diversity, the most privileged of that one dimension actually benefits. The rest are still not being lifted up. For leaders staring at that today, what would be the one or two things that the leaders can do tomorrow to start thinking about this differently? I think the only way to change the world is to first change yourself. And that's the lens versus mirror model. If you can't change yourself, if, if, you know, if you can't change yourself, you're hopeless, right? And if you're hopeless, then you can't hope much for the world. So I guess... That, that, that first change has to come from within, right? I think, um, I, and I, I don't call it a change, I call it a transformation because mindsets are difficult. Mm. They take time. But our intent, if strong, we will get there. With everything that's difficult, it, 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 it takes time. I think a couple of things that we need to look at. One is ultimately leaders still have to be what I call, what I call purpose-centered, not so much purpose-driven. I think purpose 
centered leaders will find the alignment between their work and their personal value. They will then begin to build organizations that have got this deep diversity, and they will then also be able to unleash that talent by helping their employees find their purpose. So a lot of people view purpose as a personal journey. Yes, it is a personal journey because you must first be grounded. But once you're grounded, you need to help others around you find that, that purpose. And when employees find purpose and they rally around something bigger than themselves, they begin to realize that they can do a lot better. And because they realize that they can do a lot better, they do a lot better and therefore organizations do a lot better. And being centered, why do I use this word centered? Because when you are centered, you are grounded. And being grounded means you are actually in a place that is balanced and at peace. You don't struggle, right? That means you, have, you, you, you are doubtless. You're at peace. You're tranquil. You know, there's this inner tranquility because you're just so centered, right? It's, you're in a state of emotional and spiritual equilibrium. It's a practice. It's difficult. We all struggle, right? Uh, uh, um, you know, I get frustrated, right? But it's, 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 it's finding that. And the slight difference between purpose-driven, which is more stoic, it emphasizes more action and grit, versus the centeredness, which is more on the thoughtfulness and the mindfulness, and the ability to be thoughtful, be mindful, and to be able to generate this calmness that is contagious across the entire organization is very different, right? So, so which is why I use the word purpose-centered, because it calms organizations down versus purpose-driven, which is do, 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 push, 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 which might not necessarily be the best path forward, right? You want to create more thoughtful, more mindful leaders, mm. not definitely more thoughtful and more mindful organizations. And role modeling that is key, yeah. right? Yeah, role modeling that is, is role modeling that is, is going to be is going to be critical because the traditional perception of leadership is let's do this right yeah. you know let's let's let me tell you what to do so that yeah. you go do it all right yeah let's let's do this you know this is what we sign up for you know that traditional male military approach to to leadership and that may or may not be the path forward, but I think that can be balanced. And if we balance that out well, we actually get more engaged organizations. Yeah. yeah. It strikes me like, you know, what you're describing is uh, something of a congruence. Like what you stand for must be congruent to the way you impart that to people mm-hmm. around you. Mm-hmm. And then it, and, and I like what you said, it's effortless. You know, sometimes when you keep on pushing and shoving and you feel like that struggle within yourself, I think that's the part that you feel perhaps less authentic about what you do. And that's why authenticity is not a buzzword, right? You really got to feel it. Correct. Correct. Yeah, we can, we, we can find alternate words for it. You know, people just don't like the word authenticity. But I think that's, that's, a, great, that's a great word that represents a lot. Thanks for listening. If you liked the episode, please subscribe or share your comments. And to anyone else who may like listening to this, I'm a curious marketer by day and a rebel at heart for transforming status quo at all other times. I work closely with curious rebels to drive change and radical results in their vision for work. If you'd like to have a chat, drop me a note at pearl at rebelcuriosities.com. Till then, stay curious, take care.